so I want to welcome everybody today to this conversation with uh, Jean Charest, who, as you know, is conservative leadership candidate the Party of Canada. Uh, he is, of course, a longtime uh, public figure, uh, both uh, in, at a federal level where he was a cabinet minister and a party leader uh, for the Conservatives, and, uh, and of course, Quebec Premier, twice elected. Uh, he's been in the private sector for the last uh, decade and uh, now has returning to public life or attempting to do so with a leadership race that uh, is uh, soliciting memberships across the country until uh, June 3rd and with a vote on September 10th. He's part of a contest of uh, seven people. Am, am I correct in this? Uh, and uh, yeah, six. Yeah. Six. Okay. Well, uh, and and uh, it's by no means been a um, a clean fingernailed event so far. Everybody's, uh, people are getting a little little skirmishy with each other. Um, but I thought, what we do, if you have a a, a moment or two, just uh, talk a tiny bit about why you want to do this, and then we're going to open it up for questions from our group. I'd encourage the group to use uh, chat um, uh, in our thing, so we can I, I can make sure that I. Uh, Get the order of uh, of hands and all this one properly. So, uh, Mr. Shai, good to see you again, and um, feel free to entertain us here for a minute or two, and and then we'll uh, we'll entertain you with our questions. Thank you very much, Kirk, and and thank uh, thank you all of you for for making some time for this uh, call today. I was just, if you had not already tuned in, I was mentioning with Kirk that I will be traveling uh, with my wife Michelle to British Columbia tomorrow. We'll be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and traveling back on Monday, and look forward to it. We will be, in, of course, in Vancouver as we arrive, but also uh, we'll be going to Victoria and Nanaimo. So, uh, so this uh, should be a good opportunity for us to be on the ground and meet with our team and continue our leadership race. Uh, the uh, let me give you a few technical refreshers on where, where how this race is organized. It's the vote members of the party who vote. Only those who are signed up and, uh, and members as of the 3rd of June will be eligible to vote over the summer. And it's a mail-in ballot, which is something that is in the constitution of the party. And it's a preferential ballot, which means that uh, when you receive your ballot, you indicate your first and second and third choice. And, and the results will be tabulated, the final results on the 10th of September. The other layer of uh, complexity of the race is that it's 100 points per riding. So, uh, and, and, it, and to have the 100 points, you have to have at least 100 members in each riding, which means that uh, a riding that has uh, 5,000 members and a riding that has 200 members is, uh, is going to give uh, the winning uh, candidate in that leadership race the same equivalent number of points. So it, it does add to the complexity of the race and, uh, and explains why it's difficult to find, you know, to try to decode who is where and who's doing what. What we've learned from the two last races under this format is that the front runners top out in the first ballot. They don't tend to be second choice uh, ballot support for, uh, for the others. And, uh, and that was the story of Mr. O'Toole and the, Mr., the story of Mr. Shear. Now, I'm in this race uh, because the common thread of everything I've done in my life has been about Canada, and I believe in the country very deeply, and I 
repeat everywhere I go how lucky we are to be citizens of this country. It's like winning the lottery. And, uh, and I'm running uh, because I see a country that's way below its potential. We're badly divided. It isn't just east-west. <coughs> it's also rural, urban, new Canadians. And, you know, it's even intergenerational. Uh, we're, uh, we're in this moment in our national life where we're very divided. And it's the role of the national parties to speak to that and to, and to have a vision of the country that is able to give Canadians a sense of common cause. And that's the first responsibility of any prime minister. And, and in this context, a lot of Canadians are out there are political orphans. And uh, they, uh, they're looking for a place to go, and they've seen none. We saw that in the last campaign where Mr. Trudeau, it's not so much that Mr. Trudeau won. The Conservatives lost that campaign. And now uh, a lot of our compatriots are turning to us and asking themselves, are asking us, are you up to it? Are you going to be able to get your act together and be the national political party that we believe you, the country needs and to, uh, and to offer us that leadership and, and form a national government. And a lot of those people share the values that we believe in and that I've espoused all my life. And for me, being a conservative means a few things. It means I'm a fiscal conservative, which I was all my life. You know, when Mr. Legault was elected here in Quebec after 15 years of this liberal coalition government, he was left with an $8 billion surplus. And you're not going to see that in your lifetime again. And the higher credit rating in Quebec than Ontario, which I love to say in Ontario rooms, by the way. And uh, the other value I believe in is a market-based economy, economic policies that promote growth, and that includes resources, oil, gas, pipelines, mining. Those are the things that uh, make up a good part of our economy and a big chunk of our exports and that we should be able to, uh, to get right but that's going to require some leadership. The other thing value that conservatives believe in is families and families plural, by the way. And uh, there isn't a single model of family out there to be very clear. And I believe in that as a foundation of our society, the respect of the rule of law and law and order. And it's not exclusive to conservatives, but that is clearly a value that we espouse and that we practice. Now, I haven't been shy about criticizing my principal adversary, Mr. Poitiev, about his failure in that regard when you support an illegal blockade. And we all get it on why the blockade happened and frustration and people's freedom to protest. And I'm, I'm going to be very clear on this. This is an illegal blockade. And if you're a legislator and you have the privilege of making laws, you don't have the privilege of supporting illegal blockades. You can't make laws for others and not respect them yourselves. This isn't a buffet table, the laws of the land. And so the other value in which I believe very much and, and very much sticks to Canadian conservatives is our practice of federalism. We practice a federalism that's very respectful of the jurisdictions of the provinces. And, and we've been very successful in that regard when we've been in government and making big, big things happen. So those are the values that I speak to during this leadership race. We put out, we've run a, a campaign on the ground and of content. And we put out more policy initiatives than any other campaign, whether on defense, on uh, families and daycare, on violence towards women, on, uh, on housing, on resources and climate, all these things. One of the things, and I'll close with this, that is clear in our mind though, 
If we're going to form a national government, we have to be successful in parts of the country where we've been shut out. That includes the GTA in Toronto. There's 53 ridings, we have four. It includes the lower mainland of British Columbia. It includes the island of Montreal. And in fact, a good part of Quebec, there's 32 block MPs in Quebec, 32 block MPs. I am their retirement plan. And, uh, and so those are areas, but to be successful in those parts of the country requires that our party have a few key policy initiatives that are gonna be credible. And that includes on immigration, and, and, and new Canadians, we have to be very clear on that. We can't repeat what happened in 2015 and on climate and resources. We have to have a credible plan, otherwise we're not gonna get past the door in that. And we produced a, a policy proposal in that respect that I think meets that test. So I'm gonna stop there, Kirk. And okay, turn it all right, we're gonna, get you, uh, we're gonna get you fired up with questions. We're gonna uh, uh, motor through these very quickly. Um, and uh, and I'm going to uh, ex exercise my uh, privilege on this one to give you the first one, which is I want to know what you think the resignation of Jason Kenney says about leadership that Canadians are expecting and uh, and what it does to the dynamic of the country at this pretty interesting time as we perhaps move ourselves into a recession. So uh, quite quickly, if I can get your thoughts on that one. And then we'll and Kurt, go I don't, I don't pretend to know all the insides of what's happening in Alberta. So please, uh, you know, I, I don't want to leave you the impression that I, I do because I know part of it, I, of what I've seen. We were out there last week. I've known Jason Kenny for years and I quite like him and have a lot of respect for him. But there is in Alberta this sentiment of frustration that is in the province and has been there for a while and is not going to disappear overnight. And I think that's part of what uh, we've, we've witnessed. And it isn't just with the, uh, the government or Mr. Kenny, it's also with the federal government and with the country. And that's what it says about Alberta. And that's one of the things that I'm very worried about because we should not take for granted that the country is just gonna remain the way it is all the time. And that this sentiment of frustration of alienation is just gonna go away. It's not, uh, you know, it's not just a bad mood that's going to dis disappear. And so uh, Mr. Kenny has, has run into those, that frustration in his own province and, uh, and, and, and within his own caucus. This has always been a province where there is this very strong sense of independence and uh, among caucus members, I know that and, and I knew Ralph Klein very well. Even Ralph within his own caucus, Kirk, you'll remember, uh, had his share of uh, challenges with members who we're very, very independently minded. So I think a part of it is the, the makeup of the politics in Alberta. And the other part of it is this context of frustration with the rest of the country that uh, makes it very difficult for, for leaders in Alberta to, to have a consensus okay. approach. Okay, so uh, let's get right into our questioning from our editors and our reporters. I'm actually gonna start uh, with Matt uh, at the Alaska Highway News. Uh, go forward. Thank you, Kirk. I uh, appreciate that, and uh, uh, great to meet you, Mr. Sheree. Um, one uh, quick question off the top of my head um, that I do have here. I'm not too sure how familiar you are with the Site C Dam project here on the Peace River outside of Fort St. John. It's, uh, it's the third dam 
uh, here on the river. It's been um, quite a controversial project from uh, beginning up until now and will continue to be. Um, and it's faced a number of, of challenges similar to the Muskrat Falls Dam project yeah. uh, in, in Newfoundland in terms of some geotechnical challenges and uh, quite considerable cost overruns. Uh, quite remarkably, there doesn't seem to be any sort of appetite from local officials, uh, or local MP, um, to have some federal backing of, of what is a $16 billion project for now that's going to be um, key not just to industry, but uh, what uh, BC, BC says is the decarbonization our, of our economy. So uh, curious to know your thoughts on on, on federal investment on these um uh, provincial mega projects such as Site C, and if you know that's something uh, that uh, you and a Sheree government would uh, commit to uh, in an election, and if you were to form government, Matt, I followed Site C at a distance because uh, you know my my own experience in Quebec, as you know, is that we're very very invested in hydro. We're the fourth biggest uh, producers of hydro in the world in Quebec alone. And when you combine everything in Canada, we're the third biggest producers of hydro in the world, and it's it's clean energy. And yes, I did from a distance follow the controversy in regards to whether it would go ahead or not. And uh, the Horgan government very early on, uh, I, I took note, decided to go ahead with the project, even though there were some people encouraging them, including I think the Green Party to put a halt to it. You draw a parallel with Muskrat uh, Falls, and uh, I, I'm not sure how much, I don't know enough about the details of Site C to tell you how much there is a parallel with Muskrat Falls. Muskrat really, really uh, took a, a real hit on the public finances of, uh, of Newfoundland Labrador. The government of Canada has come in to sustain and to help them out on that. And that, in, in fact, the first government intervention in the area of hydro was done by the Harper government when they underwrote the building of the underwater link between Newfoundland, Labrador and Nova Scotia. And I mention that because until very recently, Matt, in Quebec at least, I can tell you it was religion that no federal government involvement should be accepted in any way, shape, form or fashion. Now that thinking has evolved given the energy uh, issues that we have and the provinces would be ready to see or accept federal involvement as long as it is very clear and defined, and as long as it does not contravene what could be potential exports to the United States, because if the Americans thought that the federal government was underwriting the construction of dams, then it would become countervailable and would get us into trouble with our American neighbors. Now, the federal government set a precedent with Muskrat Falls by uh, coming in to help them underwrite the, uh, the project. And what I would like to see is more cooperation among the provinces on energy including interconnection lines that would allow us to you know, be logical in how we develop our, our energy grid across the country and gain efficiencies that would allow us to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And I think the federal government could play a role. So what I'm telling you, Matt, is that yes, I do think there could be a role and I would be ready to explore that with the provinces. What I'm also telling you though, is that it's gonna hit up against the acceptability of the provinces to accept that role, which I think they're ready to do now more than they ever have been in the past. That's, that's, I can confirm you that on the Quebec side. In the, in the West, it's, it's about the Atlantic Loop, uh, for example, is, a, is one of the projects that are out there. Who could be of assistance? 
Well, there's the Canada Infrastructure Investment Bank, whose mandate is to uh, support uh, these projects. And the maybe, maybe they don't need to put money into it, but they can certainly put together a financing uh, package if we need to save the project or help it to get, uh, get done. So I, I hope that gives you some idea where I would be on this. Thank you, Matt. Let's go, let's go quickly through uh, the list. And then if there, we have uh, subsequent questions, we'll go back and uh, circle back with you, Matt. Uh, Tyler Orton from Business in Vancouver. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Charre. Um, Hi. Look, uh, housing costs here in Metro Vancouver and other parts of British Columbia, um, they're pretty much divorced from where incomes are. I don't know any politician who would campaign on promising to reduce the value of people's homes. I, I don't know if that's where those uh, voters are going to be. How do we grapple with this? How do we actually find some way to figure out how this housing affordability crisis can be you know, fixed in some sort of manageable and realistic way? And all Canadians should really keep an eye on this issue for a lot of reasons. And by the way, we're getting this everywhere in the country as an issue, affordability. And it, it, it speaks to a broader issue of inflation, affordability, housing, and the, and, the, and the bigger question of, will the next generation of Canadians be able to be uh, as prosperous as their parents were and, and what can they do better? So there's, this is a, you know, really, really is a proxy uh, issue to, to a lot of issues out there. And you've been in the forefront of all of this for a while. The other part of it, frankly, that we should be concerned about is that our realist, residential real estate has been a, a big part of our GDP, about 10%. That's about double the size of what it is in the United States, which means that if it gets into trouble, the whole economy will be in trouble. And then there's, uh, as you know, uh, a, a domino effect on durable goods and, and, uh, and investment or renovations. Uh, the, the answer to this, we put out a policy on this. We need more inventory. I know that's that's the answer. It's the obvious answer everywhere. We need more housing. That's part of the problem, which means that we need to encourage or find incentives so that municipalities are able and willing to, uh, to develop uh, housing in their own uh, jurisdiction as rapidly as possible. And we should encourage multi-unit uh, housing. We should include co-ops, intergenerational housings. We, uh, in my policy, I also want to revive the tax credit that was there for those who are going to build multi-unit uh, residential uh, buildings. I would also give a, uh, a capital gains. Uh, uh, I would defer capital gains on those who sell multiple unit residential buildings to be able to reinvest in other projects if that's what they do. The idea is, and you know, that's part of the menu of things that uh, we could do to, to get there as uh, rapidly as we, we can. The other difficulty we're going to run into is that the number of policies we can put out there may actually make the problem worse rather than better. So, uh, so those are among the things that I would do. And the last thing I would add is that we need people to actually build the houses. I mean, we're in this uh, conundrum where the labor shortages are such that would, you know, even if we had everything we needed to build the house, we may not have actually have the hands and the, and the, and the, and the folks who can do it. And I would create a, a, a special pathway for uh, housing, housing workers or able to, uh, to uh, the, the, how do you say, draftmen, the, 
the uh, the workers who build the houses so that they, we can accelerate immigration and, and allow us to have the labor to actually get the job done. Great. Let's go to Bob Kronbauer at Vancouver is awesome. Thanks for your time today, Mr. Shrey. Thank um, you. Uh, two questions pretty much closely related. Um, how many Pacific salmon have you caught in your lifetime? <laughs> and uh, what are your thoughts on uh, DFO's commitment to transitioning from open net pen farming uh, in BC? I've caught a few Pacific salmon in my lifetime. I've had the opportunity of fishing and I've fished in the East Coast. So I do, I have, I've, I've gone fishing. I love it and I'm a hunter. And, uh, and uh, it's one of the great, great, you know, sources of, of uh, attraction investment in, in British Columbia. Now, I'm going to ask you to ask, re-ask your question because I'm not sure I'm familiar with the issue that you're talking about here. Could you so the, the federal that? government uh, has committed to phasing out open net pen uh, salmon farming in British Columbia due to a number of issues, pathogens being one of them. Yeah. Um, and they're on the, the migratory route of, of many of our Fraser salmon that go through the Discovery Islands. And it's June 22nd is when uh, 79 of the federal licenses are set to expire. They did some, some consultation on it last year, and it's, it's the time is ticking right now. Um, just wondering what your, I guess, if you're not familiar with it, your, your thoughts on open net pen salmon fishing. I'm not familiar with it, uh, Rob, uh, Bob, I'm sorry. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm not going to try to, you know, give you a, a, an answer since I'm not familiar with it. But I, I do know that when this type of farming is done, and I saw a report very recently, may have been as recently as yesterday, about oyster uh, also farming in the West Coast, that it needs to be very closely uh, regulated to make sure that it is done in a way that avoids uh, contamination and make sure that we don't also uh, infect, not infect, but how could I say that we uh, be a nuisance to the ecosystem on the coast to, uh, to, for, the, uh, for the salmon. So that's, that's as much as I know about. It used to be that I was once the federal minister of the environment and, you know, fish was a, is a federal jurisdiction. So these are, I know that, uh, and the Department of Fisheries run a very tight shop on these issues. So I would be, I would certainly tend to be quite, quite uh, observant of what our scientists are saying to us in regards to what needs to be done to preserve the resource. I wouldn't try to play around with the science. I'd be, I'd be pretty much uh, observed, uh, you know, attentive to what they're saying. Great. Okay. Let's go Thank to Jim Renshaw. Yeah, go ahead. John, uh, thanks for taking time for a chat today. Thank you. I wanted to ask you on the scale of fiscal conservatism, with 10 being very conservative and one being very much like the liberals, where does Jean Charest well, rate himself? I, I'm not sure. I, I don't like scoring myself, Timothy. It's always a loser's game. I mean, in the sense, I, if I, it's a reason for anyone to come in. Let, let's look at the record. You know, when I, uh, when I was Premier of Quebec, uh, we ran a very tight shot. I'll, I'll share the short story with you. When, when I was in the federal parliament leading the Progressive Conservative Party, Mr. Chrétien, to balance the books, cut cash transfers for the provinces and healthcare 40% in a single swoop, 40%. It very much destabilized our healthcare system. Then Lucien Bouchard in Quebec, he's Premier, 
wants to balance the books in 98. And he retired, paid 5,000 nurses to retire and 1,300 doctors to retire. You look back on that today, you say, this makes sense at all. Now, when I was elected in 2003, after seeing that, what I did was make sure that program spending was always below nominal growth. And that requires doing something that is the most underestimated thing in politics, discipline. And we applied that for the 10 years that I was in there. And that meant that after 15, because Mr. Couillard followed in the last, Mr. Uh, Legault was left with an $8 billion surplus, $8 billion. You're not going to see that in your lifetime again. And a higher credit rating in Quebec than Ontario. I love to say that in Ontario rooms, by the way. But that's the fiscal conservatism that I practiced in my lifetime. And when I left office, real disposable income in Quebec had gone up relative from 2003 to 2012. And taxes, Quebecers paid on average a billion dollars less in taxes. And the third thing I was very proud of is that we put together a fund called the Generations Fund, the Fonds des Générations in French, still there today. And what we did to reduce the size of debt was use the revenue from non-renewable resources to apply it into a fund to reduce the debt, which allowed the public to connect the dots between revenue, reducing the size of debt and why it's there. That fund is still alive and well. In fact, it may be a concept that could be uh, useful and could be used to retire or COVID debt in, uh, in Canada. So I, I put myself very high on the uh, ranking of fiscal conservatism, and I believe in it not just to line up the numbers, because in the end, if your fiscal house is in order, then you have the ability and the freedom to do a number of things. And thank God it was in, in, in order when Mr. Trudeau got elected that Stephen Harper had done a good job because that gave him all, all the leeway he needed to all the runway he needed to be able to spend the way he did and, uh, and, to, uh, and to allow us to, uh, to sustain people, but put us in a position now where we have a higher le high level of debt, but certainly not as high as it would have been had we been, uh, had Mr. Harper left us with a high, higher level of debt. In fact, he cleaned up the balance sheet a great deal that gave Mr. Trudeau that, that freedom. Great, okay, let's go to Braden Dupuy, who's at the Peak News Magazine in Whistler. Thanks, Kirk, and thank you so much for doing this, Mr. Charest. Uh, I think you, you might have touched on this a little bit already when you uh, talked about immigration, but I'm curious what you have to say about Canada's labor crunch, obviously it's always a hot topic here in Whistler, but we're seeing it all over the country in BC. Uh, and just as a two-part question, the immigration, uh, are you happy with the Liberal targets? I believe it's about 411,000 this year, 421,000 next year. Would you keep the immigration targets uh, set by the Liberals or would you change them? I would keep the targets at uh, a high level uh, as long as we're always committed to integration. The challenge in immigration, if you want it to work, is to make the word immigration rhyme with integration. And I, and I want to expand on that. But Raiden, you're right. Part of the challenge for this country is an aging population. And one of the biggest challenges we're going to have to develop our economy is labor shortages. And this is an urgent issue. And there's a number of things that I would like to see us do in that regard. 
One of them, by the way, you'll find this as an unusual detour, daycare policy. We got daycare policy. We That's exactly the experience in Quebec. And when I arrived in Quebec policy, politics in 98, I criticized it and it got skewered over it. And you know what? I was wrong. In the end, when done right, and then my, gov- my own government did much more on parental leave, we reestablished family allowances. It allowed women of working age between 25 and 44 who were among the lowest, had the lowest participation rate in Canada at the time to come up to one of the highest rates in the world. Now that makes a lot of sense if you have labor shortages, if families wanna have more revenue, increase productivity. So economically, it makes sense. And I'm the only candidate in this race who said I would keep the agreements that have been signed between the provinces and the feds. And I'd actually push that further by increasing the availability of a tax credit for those who don't use the public system. There's older workers, experienced workers. I think we have to rethink, we have to rethink our labor market. It doesn't make sense that people retire at 60. We have all these people out there who, if they could work and not be penalized by working, keep more of their pensions, would actually be out there in the labor market working. And that's part of the changes we have to do. Immigration, I would be laser focused on recruiting talent from all over the world. We should be counterintuitive. Other countries are closing their immigration gates because of populist policies. We should be recruiting talent. Researchers, professionals, tradespeople is the word I was looking for on the housing side, tradespeople, and bring them in. And the key there is recognizing diplomas and credentials. I did a deal with France where in between Quebec and France, your doctor in France, doctor in Quebec, uh, an engineer in Quebec, engineer in France. Those are the type of things that we should be doing. So you combine them all together. And that's how we should deal with the labor shortages. And on immigration, that's what I would do. And I would conclude agreements with the provinces to recognize credentials. We could do specific deals on categories of workers. Let's say nurses from the Philippines. We could recognize credentials. So if they come over here, we don't send them back to school. We actually allow them to work and earn their, their living. And so, and the final category is students. When I was Quebec Premier, we did something that was great fun. If you studied in Quebec and got a diploma in Quebec, UE would offer you on graduation a fast track to become a Canadian citizen. Now, Quebec and Ottawa, we have a special deal on immigration. We choose. Why don't we do that throughout the country? I could make a case to you. I could argue that economically, economically, we could actually pay students to come to Canada. And it would make economic sense to keep them, allow them to take citizenship, and it would make better sense for a country. No tuition fees could be, you know, now I'm not saying it's what I do. I think we should have tuition fees. But the point I want to make is that tuition students is, represents an extraordinary opportunity. Now, I know that uh, in, in Whistler, you have all these young Australians who show up because uh, I've been there a few times and I haven't been in a while because I'm working too hard trying to save the country. But that's okay, not that you would appreciate it. And, uh, you know, why would we not offer them conditions to be able to stay if they want to, if they're already here? So those, I'm sorry if I'm being a little long on it, but I'm very interested and passionate about that issue. And I think we're best positioned in the world to recruit people and talent. Let's do it. Thank you. Okay, you got to send us your skiing pictures. Um, Now, uh, next up, uh, Eve Edmonds of Richmond News. 
Hi there. Thanks again, um, Mr. Chere, for taking time with us. Um, you started by saying something about the country being divided. And Kirk said something about Jason Kenney and the division that's happening in Alberta. I mean, Aaron O'Toole was ousted by his own party. There is a lot of division. And I'm struggling to see how any leader of the Conservative Party is really going to bring that together. I mean, right now, it's the Liberals have this perfect little Goldilocks position of, you know, not too hot, not too cold. And I'm just curious how you're going to bring that when you've got MPs out, you know, cheering on the truckers, and then people like yourself, it just seems like a very wide divide. Eve, and I'm, by the way, I'm going to steal your Goldilocks reference. I think it describes it very well for, uh, for the Liberals. This is, this is the challenge for a party. And uh, the next leader of the party is going to have to unite the party and, uh, and organize uh, the party in such a way where it will be a real alternative in the next campaign. It's going to be a big challenge. I have no doubt about that. And uh, it'll all depend on, on the leadership. It's in the leader's hands. Uh, now, I've done that before. I led the federal progressive conservative party when we were, you know, went from two to 20. And I did it in Quebec when it was a coalition. And uh, there's no great secret apart from the fact that the leader has to have a very close relationship with the caucus. And then uh, we have to, I have to get them to work together with the membership of the party to devise uh, a plan and a platform for the next campaign. And, and if we're able to focus on that, as opposed to getting ourselves, letting ourselves get distracted by all sorts of other sideshows, well, then we'll be able to win. And, uh, and it also means that the leader has to respect the fact that we share, we're like-minded people. We share common values that have served us very well. And the Canadians recognize, accept, and like, and deploy them into the future, but we're not going to agree on everything. You know, we're not a sect. But if we if we if we're respectful of each other, then people will have a place at the table. I'm thinking of those, I don't like the expression of those who are, for example, SOCONs, or we call SOCONs. Now, who are who are those? Who are those people? If you look a little closer, here are people who are have a faith-based life. They believe in their families and their communities. You know what? They're pretty good people. And, uh, and they're part of the family. And we may not agree on certain social policies, but you know what? It's the leader's job to make sure that they feel that they're, they're part of the family and they're in the first role and they're not relegated to a secondary position. A big challenge, Eve, because the mood, the mood isn't always very good. I mean, there is some people who are angry and mad out there, but we have to move beyond that. We can't build for the future based on anger. It's not going to carry us. But the leader needs to speak to that. It's the leader's job to do that. And I'm hopeful I would be able to carry the day. Thank you. And I will steal the Goldilocks concept. Thank you. We'll send you the bill for that. Uh, <laughs> we need the revenue here in journalism right now. Uh, Robert, uh, with Peak News, uh, here you go. Go to it. Um, Hello, Mr. Charest. Uh Thank you for uh, doing this uh, conversation. Um, can you guys hear Merritt? Yes. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Australians. So one of O'Toole's uh, most popular policy positions, I think, when he was running was uh, bringing in Kanzuk. So I was curious if you're in favor of bringing in 
uh, free visa travel regime with the Australians, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom if you were to become prime minister? I would, you know, and, and Robert, I would expand that to other countries also. I thought, and I was consulted by uh, Aaron's team on that because I'm, I had initiated the Canada-Europe trade agreement. And this was in 2007. Actually, it was in Davos that the first meeting happened with the European Commissioner of Trade. And I, I'm a believer in all those, uh, all those things. One of the things, I've been very involved as Honorary Chair of the Canada ASEAN Business Council. Now we have just, we worked very hard for the last four years to convince both uh, part, parties, ASEAN and the government of Canada to enter into trade negotiations and they've done that. But you're putting your, you're putting an Aaron and put his finger on something more substantive around just trade. And that's the ability of people, the mobility of people and the ability to be as seamless as possible and allowing them to move around. That's what the future of the world will be, by the way. Immigration, a part of it may be refugees, maybe, but there's a higher and higher number of what we call aspirational immigration. That includes students and professionals, and that's what the you know the world will be about. I have a daughter in Hong Kong. Uh, she married a Frenchman. He's from France. They had a daughter in New York. She's American. She's born in New York, and they had a son in Hong Kong. We don't know what he is. So you know we. But that's, and I'm sure that if I went around the table with you today, you all have similar stories. So uh, I'm very favorable to that. But I see, I see the key for Canada in our ability to recruit talent, but also integrate them by recognizing credentials and working on that. If we get that right, we're going to put Canada, we put Canada in a, in a very good position in the world. That's where the key will be. We, countries who get that right will be way ahead of other countries. Thank you. I want to go back to uh, an earlier questioner, Matt Preprostet in uh, Alaska Highway News, because I'm sure, Mr. Sheree, you don't get up to Fort St. John very often. So uh, no. there you go. Few do, few do. Um, coming back to, to, to what you were saying uh, earlier, uh, Mr. Sheree, just talking about kind of a divided country. Obviously, uh, you, you have some sense that conservatives are, are, are divided in, in some sense in kind of Western and Eastern Canadian uh, uh, lines. I want to get your thoughts on um, electoral reform, parliamentary reform, uh, kind of your uh, thoughts. If you, if you think that the perceived imbalance of political power between the Eastern Canada and Western Canada uh, can be resolved, um, satis uh, you know, to the satisfaction of Western Canadians, some Western Canadian conservatives who would rather split off from the rest of the country and create their own little nation within Canada. Uh, what, what you might think of things like uh, an elected Senate as, as well, which is an issue for some Western Canadian conservatives. Thank you, Matt. And there's a, a lot on that question. Let me start with parliamentary reform that you did mention. I, there's two things I would change in parliamentary reform. And uh, the first one is that uh, I would borrow from what the British House of Commons have done and the chairs of committees should be elected by all the members of the House as the uh, Speaker of the House is elected, which gives them legitimacy, more autonomy. It, mean, it, does, it means that it isn't the Prime Minister's office who's choosing them and, um, and more autonomy to be able with budgets to, to be able to do the work they want to do. And I'm thinking of rebalancing the concentration of power within the prime minister's office. All of us know, I mean, in our British parliamentary system, if you have a majority, I mean, the prime minister is pretty much calling the shots on, on everything. 
he has he's, he's, he, he or she has all the levers. So this would be a, a balance. The other thing I would do that would be, I think, very helpful, and I borrow from Quebec politics, is that a minister who presents a piece of legislation should have to sit in committee throughout, from the moment they table it to the moment they leave committee. You know, in Ottawa, they don't. And I see that in Quebec, where the, and the ministers have to hear all the witnesses, answer their questions, ask them questions. It makes for much better laws. And, um, and then a real exchange with the opposition. And I, in Ottawa, I would change that. Now, on Western and, you know, for example, Senate reform, I like very much the German system. I think they, uh, having looked at a number of systems across the world, I think their system of uh, the landers being able to name uh, people to the uh, their what is the equivalent of their uh, Senate, the Bundesstreik, uh, is 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 a is a system that is worth looking at. Can we do constitutional reform? Well, in the short term, the answer is no. We're not there, and that door isn't open. But you know, if if people and some of the provinces wanted to work towards that, I wouldn't turn them away. Quite to the contrary, I think, uh, and our Senate was designed to be a house of the provinces. That's what it was designed to be, and to counterbalance the House of Commons so that the provincial and more regional voices would be heard when federal legislation is adopted. So there is something there. You, we're uh, cognizant of your time, Mr. Charest, and, and uh, can't believe that there's actually a more important place for you to be momentarily, but uh, apparently there, there is a, another call that, you, uh, that awaits you. But uh, we're going to get one question in from Tyler Orton, and then we'll wrap. Okay. Thank you. Uh, obviously, our Pacific trading partners are especially important to the BC economy, but uh, relations with China never yeah. been worse as the country has turned increasingly authoritarian. Do we decouple from China? Do we go in that direction? Do we try to no. repair relations with China? We have to rethink relations with China. We definitely do. China is a superpower. And when you think about it, quite extraordinary that in our lifetime, we've seen this country emerge as a superpower. Now, we're Canada's, you know, dealt with a superpower all its life. Our American neighbor is, uh, is, uh, is a superpower. Superpowers behave a certain way. They have impulses. And when they have an obstacle in front of them, they just tend to swipe it away. Now, each in their own context. In the case of China, we need to rethink fundamentally what our approach will be to China. And we need to do it based on our values uh, and, and what we believe in. And, uh, and yes, there are, there's always the economic relationship, but in the end we have to be, I think we have to draw the lessons of what we've just been through and what's happening in Russia with Ukraine and what's happening elsewhere in the world. What's happened with our American neighbor, our relationship with our American neighbor has changed substantially. Uh, from uh, it started under Obama, but also Trump and now even Biden. So we need a major rethink of our foreign policy and China, China needs to be part of that. Now, the federal government has promised for a while and they haven't yet delivered that uh, to do something that makes sense, that there should be a Nindo-Pacific approach. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I've been very involved with ASEAN and there are 10 countries within ASEAN and uh, it includes, uh, you know, Singapore and uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. It's very diverse, but uh, there is an opportunity for us to diversify trade. 
keep in mind CPTPP also, in which Canada is part of, uh, a big, big piece of, uh, of our trade, a, a very real uh, success for us. And we weren't invited to the CPTPP party to start with. People forget that. We had to invite, we had to break the door down to get in, not for offensive interest, but to defend whatever, what we already had. So, uh, so there needs to be a major rethink of how we are going to approach all of Asia, not just China. Thank you. Listen, Ned, I want to thank our editors and reporters for spending their time today and posing these great questions. And of course, Mr. Chere, uh, thank you for taking your time from, uh, from your busy campaign. I know you're down to the short strokes on this one. Um, and so uh, thanks so much for your time. We hope we can do this again with you. And uh, if you're elected leader, we, you know, put us on our on the docket as well for uh, for uh, a, a, another session, uh, maybe even a longer one. So thanks so much. Thank you, Kirk. And it's been a lot of fun to do it. I like this session. I like the, the fact that we can do this and reach uh, uh, all of you in a broader group. So thank you very much. Take care. Look forward to seeing you. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.